Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. On this month's Dry Cleaner Cast, we're joined by author Fred Burton. Fred discusses his new book, Beirut Rules, which takes us on a trip back to 1980s Beirut. We discuss the US Embassy bombing of 1983 and the kidnapping of CIA Station Chief William Buckley the following year. Drawing on never-before-seen US government documents, as well as interviews with Buckley's former co-workers, friends and family, Fred tells us about what he discovered about the 1984 kidnapping of William Buckley and his subsequent death the following year. Just before we begin, I'd like to just say a huge thank you to everybody who listens. If you enjoy the show, please follow us on Twitter by going to at DryCleanerCast. You can also directly support the show by becoming a Patreon subscriber. If you go to www.patreon.com forward slash DryCleanerCast, you can become a subscriber and directly support this show. If you don't remember that, that's absolutely fine. Just click on the Dry Cleaner Cast image on your phone, tablet, or if you're listening on a computer. And what you'll see uh, is both a description of the show and a series of links underneath. You'll have a link to Fred's book, Beirut Rules. You'll also see a section called Support the Show, and there's a link to our Patreon page. There is also now a new PayPal link where if you don't want to become a subscriber, but you think, you know what, this is a pretty good episode, you can now leave me a tip like you would if you went and bought a coffee, and uh, and your tip might well go to buying me a coffee, so thank you. <laughs> I'm a big coffee fan, so thank you. If you enjoy the work that I'm doing on this show, please leave a review on your preferred podcast app, so thank you very much. Um, just also before we begin, I just want to say thank you so much again for listening. Um, I've had some great interaction on Twitter from our last episode. Feel free to drop me a line on Twitter. Just tell me what you thought of the show. Also, it would be quite nice to see where people are, because, I mean, I've been looking at the statistics of uh, who listens to this show and where, and we have people from all parts of the world. We have listeners in South Korea, America, Canada, many parts of Europe, the Middle East. Um, we've also got some listeners in China, a few in Russia, which is always interesting. Um, and uh, so, yeah, send me a send me a picture. It'd be lovely to see where you are, if you're allowed to send me a picture, of course. If you're listening in a professional basis, then you can always blur out your face. It's absolutely fine. Um, but, yeah, send me a picture of where you're listening, and I'll make sure I retweet it, and I'll give you a shout-out on the next episode. So thank you so much for listening, and uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. Fred is our... I think Fred now holds the record of being our most featured guest, so thank you, Fred. I've really enjoyed all our conversations, um, and I hope we have a few more in the future. I'm sure we, we were discussing a little while back some potential future topics to discuss, so uh, I'll definitely uh, like to connect with Fred again. So, Fred, thank you so much for all your contributions on past episodes, and thank you again for joining me on this episode. I think this is a really interesting, interesting story, and sadly a rather tragic one. But uh, I think it's an important one, and uh, I'm just glad that we could uh, take a moment to discuss it on the show. So, uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy it, and thank you very much for listening. Take care. 
Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Fred, welcome back to The Dry Cleaner cast. Thank you so much, Chris, for having me back on. Now, it's great to have you back. So just before we begin, for the benefit of new listeners, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a former State Department uh, special agent. When I left Washington, I was the deputy chief of the State Department's counterterrorism division. And in essence, uh, our job was to investigate acts of terror directed towards U.S. diplomatic persons and personnel overseas, uh, as well as uh, threat mitigation as it pertains to that. Uh, And then one of our portfolios also included the Rewards for Justice program, which turned out to be the $20 million bounty for, you know, the likes of uh, Osama bin Laden. So we had a tremendous amount of success with that program early on in just – neutralizing terrorist attacks and and also using uh, reward monies to hunt down and capture terrorists. Today we're going to talk about your fantastic book Beirut Rules which I know you have a sort of personal connection with. So um, Fred can you just tell us can I give us a quick overview about the book um, and then why why you chose to write it and I suppose how you went about researching it as well. Beirut Rules is a story of the only CIA station chief to ever have been kidnapped and murdered by a terrorist uh, organization. And the backstory to the to the book, Chris, is uh, as a young agent, I was assigned uh, to the CIA hostage location task force, which was stood up uh, in the mid-1980s to basically f- try to find the CIA station chief that had been kidnapped. And his, his name was Bill Buckley. And uh, our mission was uh, to find Bill, and and during that time frame, uh, there was countless other hostages that were taken, Americans, Brits, French, Korean, even Russian hostages, and German, Irish, uh, that were kidnapped by uh, the Iranian-backed Hezbollah organization. So uh, the backstory for the book, uh, when uh, my last book came out uh, about the terrorist attack in Benghazi, uh, I knew that a story had never been done on Bill Buckley. Uh, and so I approached the CIA and said, I would very much like to tell this story, uh, but I would like to have your help and cooperation. And then I also approached uh, Bill's uh, surviving family members uh, to to solicit their cooperation. And, and so um, I, I got a lot of help from both, and um, that certainly helps try to piece together, uh, in essence, a, a, a secret man's life. Yeah, yeah, and I, must, and I bet that wasn't easy because I know there's a lot of uh, redactions in the book and things like that. It wasn't easy, but surprisingly, uh, I had a tremendous amount of assistance from uh, Bill's old colleagues and former CIA friends and coworkers, and then the family was instrumental. And you know, this is an individual that um, you know is from a different generation. You know, he was born in 1928 uh, up in the yeah. Massachusetts area, and um, goes off to, he would have been 13 when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, to put it in context for your listeners. And then he always wanted to be a soldier, according to his sister. Mm. And um, she was wonderful uh, to help paint the family picture. And uh, Bill, shortly after high school, uh, goes off to uh, enlist in the Army, uh, goes off uh, to Korea uh, with the 1st Cavalry Division, where he is awarded the Silver Star and Purple Heart for uh, 
rushing a machine gun nest and then returns to the United States and, and gets his college degree from Boston University. And um, he's recruited by this mysterious figure uh, known uh, only as Girl, G-U-R-L, um, who apparently was a, a spotter for the CIA in and around the campuses there in the Boston area and, and goes to work uh, for the agency uh, shortly after college and uh, simultaneously volunteers uh, for the U.S. Army Reserves, where he's assigned to a special forces group. Wow. And can you tell us a bit about his time in the CIA before his Beirut posting? Well, Bill uh, was what is called inside the agency a paramilitary officer. And um, it, it's kind of interesting in the course of interviews for this story. Uh, there is very much a class system with in, inside the agency. I, you know, most people think of the CIA uh, with the clandestine services and the Yale and Ivy League grads. And and Bill was different. Uh, Bill um, came from a blue collar kind of hard scrabble background, uh, where he had already fought in one war and uh, certainly uh, had been at the uh, the tip of the spear. Uh, and and his focus was uh, paramilitary kind of activities where uh, he would train foreign governments in hostage rescue and and guerrilla insurgencies and so forth. So uh, again, um, uh, he shipped off to Vietnam where um, he was uh, actively involved in uh, paramilitary and specialized operations for the military, the U.S. Army. Uh, and then simultaneously working with the CIA uh, during that time period uh, in Vietnam. And uh, one of the more interesting aspects, uh, Chris, when I was doing research for this book, uh, the family provided uh, these old black and white pictures of uh, Bill Buckley. And, uh, and on the back of them were Bill's handwritten notes about uh, his jungle activity in Vietnam. And that was just a fascinating insight into what he was dealing with uh, on any given day. And I, I found that in every photo of Bill in the bush in Vietnam, he's accompanied by an Australian radio man. And uh, that kind of led me down a rat hole looking for, I had no idea at the scope of Australian um, special forces activity in Vietnam. So uh, that's probably wor worthy of a book in itself, but uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, it's amazing the kind of things you stumble upon uh, when you're putting one of these books together. And, and I must say in Vietnam, uh, Bill was also highly decorated again as a soldier uh, where he was awarded uh, and was a recipient of a second silver star uh, in Vietnam for uh, gallantry under fire. So, um, Bill was the kind of guy, Chris, that was always running towards danger. Yeah, a very brave man. And he ended up in, was it the counterterrorism center before his Beirut posting? Is that right? That's right. And um, it's funny you mentioned that. At the time when Bill was uh, before Beirut, he's assigned to what was a very small and fledgling organization called the Counterterrorism Group. Yeah. And when I worked over there, it was called the Counterterrorism Center. So uh, it had grown uh, by the mid-80s. But at the time Bill first gets assigned to this mission, the organization is very small and uh, global in reach, certainly. Uh, but it was still an organization, Chris, that was very much still engaged hot and heavy with the Cold War, with the Soviet Union 
and and the Soviet proxies. So terrorism was this phenomena that uh, literally uh, nobody was ready for when it uh, – um, uh, when they, when they started to hit us hard in, in, in Beirut in the 80s. So, um, uh, you know, looking back on Bill's career, I'm not surprised that he gravitated toward that organization uh, just based upon his uh, guerrilla experience uh, in Vietnam. Mm. Well, can you, can you give us a feel of what Beirut was like in the early 80s and what the sort of significance of the city is from a sort of intelligence point of view? Beirut in the uh, early 80s uh, was, was kind of like Castle Blanca with with Humphrey Bogart. This was uh, the center of gravity for spies and spooks of all ilk. You had Lebanese intelligence, the Israeli Mossad running around. Um, and then, of course, um, in April of 1983, uh, you have um, the Iranian-backed uh, organization called the Islamic Jihad group that attacked and bombed and leveled uh, the U.S. embassy and and literally uh, decapitated the CIA's eyes and ears on the ground in Beirut. Uh, the agency was holding a a conference there when the uh, truck bomb went off, and it it literally decimated the CIA. So, uh, and and that's when uh, Bill um, is volunteers to go off to Beirut to to stand up um, the CIA's operations. Uh, uh, during this time period. Yeah, one of the victims of the embassy bombing was Robert Ames, um, who was quite a sort of significant figure in trying to build a back channel to, was it the PLO or Hezbollah? I can't remember which one it was. Now. It was the PLO, uh, specifically uh, Robert Ames, who was killed in the uh, first embassy bombing, was a legendary CIA uh, figure. Uh, and he uh, had um, uh, recruited and was operating uh, Ali Hassan Salome, uh, also known mm. as the Red Prince. And mm. Uh, the Red Prince was the back channel to uh, Fatah, Arafat's PLO, and so forth. So uh, you had very experienced CIA people uh, that were killed in this bombing, and uh, of course the agency, you know, needed somebody to go in to stand up ops, and Bill volunteered to go, and and I'm I'm not surprised in the least. The more I I got to know him in the course of my research, I mean, yeah. that's exactly the kind of work that uh, Bill did. Yeah, and with that, with the embassy bombing um, in '83, was was the CIA the primary target because they were having that main meeting there, weren't they, at the time that it happened? They were. Uh, there was. Uh, a lot of conjecture at the time period, and and I know even when I started uh, in '85 um, uh, in in the business, uh, both embassy bombings uh, in Beirut uh, became uh, that uh, tripwire, a series of tripwire events that just reformatted the entire U.S. government counterterrorism effort. And and one of the things that was always speculated speculated about was, you know, was it possible that, that the, the bad guys, the terrorist organizations had learned that this conference was taking place and, mm. and so forth? So uh, it was uh, an extraordinarily difficult time for the U.S. government during this time period. It seemed like every other day, uh, you know, we were dealing with um, threats and, and threats of additional attacks and, and very real and scary threats as evidenced by what had just happened. Mm. 
So after the bombing back at the CIA headquarters, the then head, William Casey, he handpicked Buckley, didn't he, to be the new chief of the Beirut station. Um, can you talk to us about why he sort of chose Buckley and how Buckley kind of felt about the, the his new position? Well, uh, Bill, again, um, had, if you look at careers in the agency during that time period, uh, you had... Um, uh, a good number of uh, former Phoenix program vets from Vietnam, um, old uh, OSS legacy kind of personnel that's still around, uh, individuals that that had fought in wars. Uh, but you know the organization was still primarily focused on the Soviet Union, so they they needed a man like Bill with his paramilitary and guerrilla experience because. One of the keys to trying to prevent terrorism was finding a man who knows how to train a foreign government and standing up their own counterterrorism forces. So mm. uh, Bill's got the background in training because of his time uh, in Vietnam and elsewhere in training forces in hostage rescue and counterterrorism activities. So uh, the thought being inside the CIA at the time that he would have been perfect to be sent to Lebanon to help the Lebanese um, stand up a force that could prevent other kinds of attacks from taking place. Yeah. And um, after the embassy bombing, the CIA station was temporarily moved to the British consulate. Um, you sort of describe a quite a, I don't know how to uh, put it, but a sort of quite a quite difficult conditions. Um, can you can you sort of describe the situation on the ground Buckley faced as he arrived in Beirut? Uh, this is a uh, country during that time period that literally was on fire. Mm. Um, you know, you had a constant threat stream, if you can imagine. Uh, you know, the lead up to the Benghazi attack in, in Libya as an example, it's a modern day example. Mm -hmm. uh, you had like a frog in a boiling pot. You had uh, various factions uh, uh, all engaged in, in Lebanon. You had the spy services from a half a dozen half a dozen agencies trying to get a handle on activity. Uh, you had organizations like the Islamic Jihad organization that uh, was Iranian backed. And we would subsequently learn a lot about uh, the, the Hezbollah organization uh, as a result of that. And so uh, it, it was a tinderbox uh, that uh, was ready to explode in so many different aspects. And it's the kind of uh, scene, as you look back on it, that, uh, quite frankly, I have never seen in my lifetime, uh, even with you know the, the current state of uh, a war around the globe. Uh, if you wanted to be in the intelligence business uh, and you wanted to hunt down terrorists or be focused on terrorism, Chris, uh, you had to have a footprint in Beirut. Yeah. So uh, everybody was playing there from MI6 to the CIA to the Mossad to the French. Uh, the list just goes on and on. And it was an incredibly dangerous city. And I remember one of the things that cropped up when when Buckley became sort of chief of station, he had to sort of uh, fight to get authorization to allow his officers to be armed. Because if I'm right in remembering, they weren't routinely armed, which is quite different to obviously what you see in the movies. Yeah, it's uh, it's never like the movies. Uh, you're right. You 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 know the organizations have to ask permission from a foreign government. Surprisingly. Uh, if you want to play by the rules, which mm. was another aspect uh, that that I think is important for your listeners, is that uh, there were no rules in Beirut, uh, and that's why we came up with the title called Beirut Rules, meaning mm. uh, Beirut Rules was different. Uh, Beirut Rules were, uh, if your spooks and spies are going to be out and about, uh, they better have guns, uh, because mm. we're not 
uh, dealing with uh, the old Cold War adversary here where uh, you don't expect the Russian KGB, or at least in those days, you would not expect the Russians to uh, to target your personnel and try to kill you. Mm. Uh, you know, in Beirut during this time period, uh, you had um, these terrorist organizations that that uh, had killed and were planning to kidnap and planning to kill more. Yeah. And what were the sort of priorities of the CIA station? Now Now Buckley sort of the head of the station. What kind of operations were they involved with at that time? During that time period, they're heavy into liaison with the Lebanese uh, intelligence services. Uh, they're uh, trying to get a shape of the landscape uh, uh, in the aftermath of the first embassy bombing. And then, of course, while Bill is there, we have the uh, – car bombing of the marine barracks, which was another slap uh, uh, of the beak of the eagle, so to speak. Uh, that was a term that, that I remember hearing at one point at the CIA where, uh, you know, you had uh, the terrorist organizations that had now not only blown up the U.S. embassy the first time, now they bombed the, the U.S. marine barracks there in Beirut. So uh, your job, first and foremost, is is trying to collect adverse intelligence on the, literally the next truck bomb heading your way. Yeah, and 305 people were killed in that bombing, weren't they? It was a horrific attack. Terrible attack. And, uh, you know, again, uh, it was an intelligence failure for the CIA not to see that coming, not to prevent that from occurring mm. uh, on the heels of this devastating terror attack. And um, that's, I think, the, the second bombing, Chris, uh, really woke up uh, the world, and and I know the United States and the Europeans that uh, we literally did not do not have a handle on this problem. That uh, the 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 threat and the scope at that point in time uh, had exceeded the U.S. government capability to try to uh, prevent these kinds of events from occurring. And you know the the challenge is, and the same challenge uh, we had in looking for Bill Buckley was uh, we just lacked the uh, human intelligence sources to to try to find him. You know, it's it's amazing to me that it always boils down to that. Yeah, it must have been incredibly hard for an American CIA officer to be able to recruit sources out there whilst at the same time, you know, staying safe. Absolutely. I mean, if you imagine uh, a CIA uh, at this time period with a hodgepodge uh, makeshift crew, of personnel going in and out uh, uh, while you got your feet on the ground, you're you're literally, uh, thank goodness, being uh, welcomed into the uh, the British uh, consulate. So you have a base of operations, which, you know, certainly um, uh, you have to imagine those discussions behind the doors that uh, the UK must have been thinking, well, my goodness, they've just blown up the uh, Americans twice now, and now mm -hmm. we have them literally living under our roof, but. You know, um, that relationship has always been that strong that I would certainly not expect any less than, than that kind of help on any given day. But, uh, you know, the Americans are dragging the threats to the Brits. And so it, it's one of these scenes where each and every day you have to watch your six. You got to watch your back. Uh, you got to think about who's surveilling you, what's the scope of surveillance uh, from technical surveillance to human surveillance. Uh, and it's just very dangerous time period. Yeah, I mean, God, I know if I were there, I'd be intensely paranoid, like permanently. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think dear. I would have tried to uh, figure out a way to get myself posted to London during that time period. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yes, much safer. Or maybe Bermuda. <laughs> yeah, I know. Bermuda does sound nice, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so sadly, on, on the 16th of March, the following year, 1984, William Buckley was kidnapped by a group of gunmen. So, um, Frank, can you just talk us through kind of what happened that day? And I suppose how, how they caught such an experienced man? Well, at the time, uh, Bill is... Um, Station chief, uh, meaning he's running the entire CIA operations in Lebanon. So the man knows all the secrets. He's 55 years old, and uh, he's living off compound in his own apartment slash safe house, off compound, without security, and uh, he's driving himself to work. Now, Certainly, that's one of the things that we dissected after his abduction. You know, why wasn't there more security in place? Why was he leaving off compound, this and that? But uh, he gets into his car and he proceeds to to drive off. And uh, he literally is overwhelmed by uh, cars of gunmen that uh, proceed to take him hostage in 1984. And, and literally, he vanishes without a trace. And you got to stop and think. For a moment, much like uh, Ambassador Stevens missing in Benghazi after the embassy, after the, the special mission compound there was overran. Mm. Here you have uh, the CIA's head man who has been kidnapped. And this had never happened before in the history of the agency at that time. And so um, there was really no contingency plan for, you know, what do you do when the station chief's kidnapped? Mm. So, uh, as you can imagine, um, there was just chaos, uh, not only inside the U.S. Embassy, but uh, in Washington at that time period. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose also it's it's the timing so critical because obviously he's getting kidnapped by people who know what they're doing. Um and, you know, he probably hasn't had a chance to alert anybody. I don't know what the procedures were for alerting that I'm in the middle of being kidnapped. Um, so that timing is crucial, really, to be able to find these people. It, it really is. And uh, his abduction and his kidnapping uh, pretty much uh, changed how uh, CIA chiefs of station operate around the globe. Mm. Uh, it was a wake-up call for us in, in Washington. Mm. Uh, as a young agent, I can remember... Uh, getting briefed and trained on what to do if you're taken hostage. And of course, you never think about that uh, unfolding, but lo and behold, here here this had unfolded. So the State Department, uh, like most government agencies, it takes uh, some sort of catastrophic event for changes to be made. Uh, everybody gets moved onto the embassy compound. Uh, the CIA begins to uh, shut down all intelligence operations uh, believing from a worst case scenario that that Bill, since he was the keeper of all the secrets, he would know who all the sources are. He would know where all the safe houses are. He would know how we conduct our surveillance ops and our vehicles. He would know our communications capabilities or lack thereof. Mm. So you have a complete shutdown again on uh, March 16th, 1984 of, of all CIA intelligence related op operations in Lebanon. And so this was um, uh, a second time again, uh, the first being in April of 83. Mm. So now you've had this two-step whammy, and uh, everybody begins to to hunker down and assess um, damage, what damage could have 
could Bill mm. compromise? You have to assume that uh, everybody's going to eventually give up whatever they know under sleep deprivation or torture. Uh, you know, what's next? What are the terrorists going to do? What are they going to do with him? Where did he go? And, and mm. you know, we we were looking for a needle in a haystack at that moment and um, visiting with um, all of our liaison services from the Brits to the French to the Lebanese, trying to figure out what they've heard, uh, asking the Israelis for help. Uh, so we had a man missing and we had no idea where he was. Yeah. And it must be, I mean, again, like, you know, thinking of movies is like somebody goes missing. They kind of call all the usual people in and stuff and eventually find them. But poor William Buckley was never found. How do you go about trying to find somebody like that in a city like Beirut? I know you were personally involved at certain points in trying to find William Buckley. Well, uh, at that point in time, um, the CIA begins to create the Hostage Location Task Force. Uh, we called it the HLTF. Mm. And uh, it was a multi-agency group of CIA, State Department, and FBI, and uh, the U.S. military. And, and our job was to find Bill Buckley. And it was a laser-focused task force uh, drawing upon the, the entire spectrum of the U.S. government intelligence capabilities uh, to in an effort to try to find him. And so uh, you rely on um, human source reports, uh, whatever else you can get from foreign liaison contacts. Uh, we we had many, many meetings with our counterparts from different foreign agencies asking for help because we had other missing hostages. So there was a lot of uh, foreign governments that were also looking for their people. And, uh, you know, so we... Uh, we tried to do the best we could, um, but it, this is also in an era with a lack of satellite imagery, uh, with a lack of cell phones, with a lack of the internet. Uh, so uh, things are slowed down. It's not at the speed of Twitter, mm. uh, you know, in those days. Uh, you're relying upon reports that were being handwritten or typed, and you would wait 24 hours to see whatever it is you're trying to see. Uh, your satellite imagery was uh, pretty much um, uh, unhelpful because it wasn't as granular as it is today. Uh, we didn't have things such as drones. Mm. So, uh, you know, you're operating uh, uh, literally in an environment where you're greatly restricted by technology as well. Yeah, yeah. Are you able to just sort of tell us a little bit about what kind of conditions William Buckley was kept in uh, during his time in captivity? One of the things, and that's a very good question, Chris, one of the things that, first off, we did not know much, mm. meaning we thought that all the hostages were being held separately for a long period of time until uh, the hostages started to come out. Mm. And uh, Father Martin Jinko, who was a wonderful man, former Catholic priest, had been kidnapped mm. And um, he was held with Bill. And then the light bulb went off on our head saying, well, what do you mean? I, we thought that all the, all the hostages, all you guys were being held separately. And they, they said, no, no, we're all together. And so those are the kinds of pivotal times in, in the course of our dealings with, ho with the hostages to, to realize that if we could find them all, we perhaps could rescue them. Mm. Uh, but they were held in... Uh, very bad conditions at times. For the most part, uh, they were chained uh, individually to uh, old radiators uh, that uh, provided heat. 
when they were moved, uh, they were taped up with uh, duct tape like mummies and sometimes thrown uh, in the back of a livery or back of a truck, uh, covered up with bales of hay and other boxes and so forth. Uh, at times, they were held in the, in the southern suburbs of Beirut in various apartments. In other times, they were in the Baqa Valley. Mm. They, they were uh, interrogated uh, at times and, and not provided health care or dental care. Uh, and uh, they had very little reading material, if at all. So um, it, it was uh, dire circumstances for for many of these hostages during this time period. Yeah, and these and I remember these dreadful tapes sent to the CIA at different stages of William Buckley's kidnapping to kind of uh, guess to taunt the CIA. Oh my goodness, I I can't tell you the times I I studied those tapes. And, you know, there's actually we, we actually developed an art behind that, Chris, meaning mm. uh, there's a lot of digital forensics off uh, videotape. And so uh, which, you know, from being a film producer as well, mm. Uh, mm. we were able to try to deconstruct that tape, those tapes and, and examine the hostage, line up the current picture of the like Bill Buckley with previous pictures of Bill, mm. uh, ask the CIA Office of Medical Services for an assessment to see, you know, has he lost weight? Uh, how does he look? And then we would uh, break apart those videotapes, literally frame by frame, looking for uh, backdrops, similarities. Mm. Uh, we would break down the sound, listening for corns honking or children playing uh, or uh, farm animals uh, for... Um, you know, s acoustics. So um, we we got pretty good at that uh, in in breaking apart uh, the hostage videos. Uh, and uh, at one point, I can remember we pretty much concluded that there was one cameraman uh, that appeared to be taking all the videos. And so then we kind of sit back and say, well, maybe we can find that cameraman. And if we find that cameraman, they can lead us to the hostages. So yeah. those are the kinds of things that we were thinking about and actually doing on a practical level behind the scenes. Yeah. Wow. Yes. You can learn a lot actually about how something's filmed and things. So yeah, especially uh, kind of lighting involved actually, whether it had enough power for it and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. Absolutely. And then we were looking at, uh, that's a very good point. Uh, we were looking mm. for uh, sun any evidence of sun peeking through uh, blinds, uh, those kinds of things. And and um, so uh, we really got uh, down on the details. The other kind of fascinating thing we, we did was uh, each hostage would read like a prepared statement or a communique, mm. or we would get communiques associated with a kidnapping. And we conducted this, uh, what was called psycholinguistic analysis, meaning uh, the study of words and phrases to try to see if we can draw some commonalities from it. And mm. so that kind of took off on its own kind of work. So we were able to build upon the various communiques to, to try to paint a picture of motive and, and the author and so forth. So, um, and, and I, I'm very proud to say that, you know, the, those kinds of skill sets still exist today. And, you know, of course they're operating on steroids today, but, uh, we were kind of the the grandfather of of that that science and looking at that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's sad in the eighties. Obviously, um, Beirut sort of became synonymous with these politically motivated kidnappings. I kind of remember endless stories on the TV about Terry Waite when I was a when I was a kid growing up in that time. 
Um, and it was Hezbollah who were the group were responsible for kidnapping William Buckley and the majority of the kidnappings in the 80s. Can you talk to us about these kidnapping, sorry, these kidnappings, the, you know, some of their motivations and who the main architect was behind them? When you looked at uh, that time period, uh, first, uh, we would have great debate at times uh, inside the Beltway over who actually was behind this. And mm. uh, we would argue as the degree of Iranian control and did the Iranian control control reach down into the Islamic Jihad organization. Was the Islamic Jihad organization actually part of Hezbollah? Um, who was Hezbollah? You know, who were the personalities behind this? And and we came to the conclusion that uh, the, the kidnappers were operating under direct uh, Iranian control, funding, direction. Uh, and uh, we had a principal uh, kidnapper, a master terrorist by the name of uh, Emad Mugnia. Uh, and Mugnia was um, also codenamed the Fox uh, at one point. And, and he had risen through the ranks, uh, interesting enough, through um, Fatah links and Nexus and family uh, to become um, kind of uh, a go-to guy for Hezbollah for for all things kidnapping, from hijackings to to the abduction of terrorists, uh, we we linked him to the embassy bombings. Uh, so uh, we we knew we had a, um, for a lack of better terms, a uh, a madman that was a noble adversary that uh, had now managed to kill more Americans than anybody, uh, and single handedly, you know, driving these attacks and, and abductions. Uh, and we knew he had Bill Buckley. Mm. So um, uh, we started to paint a picture as best we could about Magnia. But, uh, you know, I, again, I can't emphasize enough uh, about the intelligence gaps we were operating with at the time, Chris. We, mm. you know, it, it wasn't like today where you could Google Emad Magnia and pull up a picture and everything you know about him. Uh, in those days, we we had this mysterious figure and we would get these vague and grainy passport pictures. Uh, you know, we would get sightings and street speculation of him moving about and so forth. And, and, and so it was, it was like we were always, um, three days behind him or 60 days behind him, depending upon uh, whatever intelligence report we were reading. Yeah, it sounds a bit like that movie, The Day of the Jackal, hunting for him. Very much so. Uh, very much uh, just like that. Uh, we were um, consistently, uh, we were never able to figure out what he was going to do next. Um, uh, and then a curious thing happened. We started mapping out his family Hmm. And we found out that uh, uh, his brother-in-law, uh, a, a character by the name of Badr al-Din, uh, Badr al-Din had actually been rolled up uh, by the Kuwaitis hmm. for being involved in the Hezbollah bombing of the U.S. Embassy in Kuwait in 1984. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, one of our theories we were operating under is this was very personal for Magnia. And that uh, he perhaps wanted to exchange, whether it be Bill Buckley or one of the American hostages, for his brother-in-law, uh, who was being held uh, in a Kuwaiti prison. Yeah. And what was the what was the real, I suppose, political motivation for these kidnappings? Because these these kidnappings weren't really about raising money, like um, with other groups today who kidnap people for money. This was all about uh, Iranian foreign policy, Chris. To 
uh, utilize uh, guerrilla activities, uh, utilizing uh, the Hezbollah organization uh, in an asymmetric warfare to drive the U.S. out of Lebanon uh, to create as much pain as they could for the U.S., the U.K., and the Western allies. And uh, I got to be blunt, they were pretty damn good at it, and um, Mm. they were highly successful. Yeah. And... um Slightly going a bit off topic, but I know because um, Hezbollah and Imad Magnir went on to sort of end up fighting U.S. troops in Iraq uh, during the sort of 2003 Iraq war. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, Magnir, uh, I was convinced he had nine lives. Uh, he went on mm. uh, to become um, a very influential and key asset for Iran uh, and became uh, – well, first he became the chief of uh, security operations for Hezbollah, just carrying out global terror mm. uh, around the world. Uh, and then uh, he became the principal intelligence liaison, liaison to the Iranian uh, intelligence services. And so um, you know, he was, uh, again, um, a poster child for, for terror for global terror. Mm. And sorry, forgive the very point of question, what was Unit 2300 in Hezbollah? That was the group that uh, uh, was predominantly responsible for putting together uh, terror operations uh, directed towards uh, the U.S. and Israeli assets. Mm. It was uh, a specialized group uh, that was uh, engaged in in very – uh, you know, operating a, a, as almost a nation-state intelligence service could, because mm. they had um, uh, Iranian intel and support. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you an interesting sidebar conversation mm. uh, to that mm. is um, I can remember talking to a, a individual that was very uh, knowledgeable about. Uh, Iranian intelligence activities in Beirut during this time period. Mm. And he was telling me that pretty much uh, their operational ability, they did not have to really have a lot of assets or resources on the ground because Hezbollah was uh, their the proxy to carry out whatever it is they needed to do. Mm. And so um, you had um, you know a very sophisticated terrorist organization that was getting funded and operational, uh, guidance from uh, Iran. Wow. And are they still, um, and they're still a big player in the world today, aren't they? The, um, the Hezbollah and Unit 2300. Two Absolutely. Uh, you know, if you look at uh, going back to the Israeli Hezbollah war, um, mm. you look at uh, the footprint of Hezbollah today uh, in Lebanon and their capabilities. And, you know, recently you, you've seen uh, the EU come out accusing Iran of carrying out uh, targeted assassinations uh, mm. uh, in Europe. And mm. so uh, it, it's, it's amazing to me. I was uh, chatting with our analysts here at, at Stratfor about this issue, and uh, mm. it, it's like we're back in the 80s again. We just don't see the spectacular terror attacks like we did because pre- predominantly because of our physical security structures that are in place to prevent these kinds of things from occurring. Uh, But um, some of these uh, adversaries are still here and very much capable of killing. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was, um, I can't remember where it was, I was reading, but I've, I've, there's been talk of um, Iran scoping out various targets sort of across Europe for some time now, and it's been causing some concern. Um, so it's quite, yeah, sort of interesting. They seem to be kind of, kind of coming back in a big way. Absolutely. And if you look at, 
this is this, the thing that scares the Israeli Mossad and, and the U.S. and the U.K. to death is mm. if you look at uh, their past an- antics, you know, for example, down in B.A. Argentina, uh, when they leveled the Israeli embassy, mm. as well as the Amia bombing there, uh, you know, they struck twice in that same location. And then, mm. um, you know, I can recall uh, very serious uh, plots in Bangkok. So you have uh, an organization that has a global capability today. And and um, it's amazing to me that, you know, all roads led back to Beirut uh, in mm. 1983. And we're, we're still in many ways dealing with the same problems today. Yeah, yeah. Indeed. Well, but before we sort of wrap up, I'd like to have, sort of have a chat a bit about sort of William Buckley's sort of legacy today, because his body was returned in 1991, and he had a proper burial in the US, didn't he? He certainly did. Uh, we were once we learned Bill was dead. Uh, Father Jinko had told us that Bill, Father Jinko, was a hostage that was held with Bill, and he mm. told us that Bill had died in captivity. Uh, we didn't stop looking for Bill, uh, obviously. Um, there was a great sense of uh, failure on our part that we had, could not find him in time. Uh, and, and it's very ironic, Chris, because one of Bill's – well, Bill's biggest fear was that he would be taken hostage. But I'm, I'm sad to say that we were not able to find Bill, uh, but we we still continued with the task force. Uh, we, we hunted – um, for information and sources to try to lead us to Bill's body. And, and we were able to recover his body uh, along with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Rich Higgins, who um, had also been kidnapped and murdered by Hezbollah. And we were able to bring both home uh, in uh, 1991. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Bill's legacy, Bill, um, if you look at um, Bill today, um, you know, he's a the the 51st star uh, on the CIA uh, hall uh, in the hallway there the CIA of their honors of um, heroes who've died to the country uh, mm. uh, the the agency has not forgotten about Bill the intelligence community has not because uh, you know it shows you the danger that uh, intelligence personnel face around the world and and you know his his legacy lives on from that aspect and mm. and again it takes tragedy to force change today you know CIA station chiefs are much better protected they have uh, security details and teams and and uh, there's just better watch and oversight on on meetings and how these things unfold that that didn't exist in the early 80s so um you know the the job is a little bit safer today because of uh, what happened to Bill, uh, mm. but you know that's that's what it takes at times to kind of shake up bureaucracy. Yeah, it's sad, isn't it? It takes something like that, but uh, but uh, at least there's something positive that's come from it. But uh, so, Fred, is there anything else you'd like to add before we sort of uh, add to the story before we finish up today? Uh, well, uh, first, I'd like to thank you for your interest in Beirut rules, uh, Chris. Uh, I, I think it's uh, an important story that, that certainly resonates today, and uh, I think that um, if uh, your listeners um, uh, want to get a scope on uh, the degree of Iranian-backed terrorism that still inflicts uh, the world today, that uh, Beirut rules uh, will, will help them make sense of the problems that we still face. Yeah, it's a brilliant book. I mean, I've learned a lot from it myself, actually. And um, I was I, one of the things that came across a bit of a shock, actually, is how many CIA officers have died since Bill Buckley. 
passed away. Because um, I think, is it 111 stars in the CIA wall? Uh, I I think that's right. Um, yeah. I don't know if any have been added since the book has been done, but that would not mm. uh, surprise me in the least. Uh, uh, so um, it's it's dangerous work, Chris. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Well, Fred, thank you so much for joining me today. So where, where can listeners sort of find out more about you and your work? Oh, I would encourage them to take a look at uh, our website, www.com stratfor.com uh they'll see um you know your ability to learn more about what we do here at the company uh, or uh, inquire more about beirut rules uh uh there there's special offerings and so forth for folks that might be interested in the book excellent and um, i'll include a, a link in the show notes to the book as well so people can purchase it directly from uh, from amazon so uh, yeah hopefully make it easy for them to find Thank you again, Chris. I really enjoyed our chat. My pleasure. Thank you, Fred. Thank you. Like what we're doing? Support the show by becoming a Dry Cleaner Cast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. For more information about the podcast, visit our website at drycleanercast.co.uk. Thanks for listening.